Hello and welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. Have you ever wondered what it might take to get uh, business leaders to make better decisions surrounding technology? And I'm thinking specifically about the technologies that go into conversational AI. Uh, we've been trying to help answer that question on this podcast, and today we have a really great guest who I think can help move the needle even further. We're delighted to have Cassie Kozarkov with us today. She is the CEO at Data Scientific and until very recently was the chief decision scientist at Google, uh, decision science being a field that she helped to institute at the technology giant. Cassie uh, has a six and a half hour course on YouTube, uh, Friends with Machine Learning, that is totally free. And it's also very ambitious. It, uh, it's geared towards not just uh, CEOs, but also researchers even high school students with no technology background are kind of invited to take that course. And as she's moving into this new phase in her career, she's going to be releasing some courses on LinkedIn as well, a book, and I assume a lot more keynote speaking sessions. Cassie recently made the point to Fortune magazine that we're in a time that feels like an inflection point, certainly something that Rob and I agree with. Uh, and she also feels like it's essential right now to have leaders in place that are educated in decision-making and consumers that can hold them accountable. So that kind of broad education, uh, I think is one of the key ingredients to getting to that place where business leaders are making better decisions. And of course, uh, the general public is more attuned to what a good decision looks like with this technology. And part of that, as we'll discuss, is about putting a responsible face on this technology. Right now, it seems to operate kind of as if by magic. Uh, this is a great conversation that helps to demystify that aspect of AI and also really uh, push the envelope on a lot of the big questions that we've been discussing now for two seasons here on Invisible Machines. So let's get into that conversation with Cassie right away. All right. Well, Cassie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Rob and I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I, I was watching uh, the keynote that you gave at Web Summit Rio uh, just this year, and you made the point that right now we're not in the midst of an AI revolution, kind of despite what we're being told, that it's that it's actually a user experience design revolution, which was was music to our ears because, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about how AI is going to affect you know, every job at every organization. But that comment really got me thinking that, you know, is it possible that, that designers most of all might be working in like a radically different landscape moving forward? Well, I'm so excited for this conversation because I have a lot of things to say about design, even though I'm not a designer. So I need everyone to take whatever I'm saying and like reduce it at least 10 times because whenever someone is speaking <laughs> outside their discipline, you got to watch out. So I'm just going to say that, you know, like I'm going to be that person. Most recently, this AI revolution is a new version of AI, not applying AI at enterprise scale to solve this monolithic problem, but taking some AI solutions that exist and building on top of it with the output of those systems being a raw material for everybody else to use to solve their problems. So this is where we dig into the UX stuff. <laughs> Last decade, it was embarrassing. I mean, you lot are UX people, I don't know, but I have this sense that if you design something 
and your user from that design could tell if it was running JavaScript in the background, you fail. You don't want <laughs> your user to know that. Similarly, you don't want your user to know that there's AI in the background. It just has to work. It has to be right first time. And so that's the core principle. Seamless, correct. User doesn't need to think about it. It just works. Netflix serves some recommendations of what to watch. Nothing is stopping the user shouting at the user, hey, this is all AI. This is using this kind of technique. Now it's logistic regression. Now it's neural networks. No one has to worry about that. You just get what you get. But you're not interacting with it as an AI output. And you're certainly not expected to go and no. you know, do something creative with it. Yeah, another way to put that is to say that in, in the traditional sense, UX is the translator between two languages. One language that uh, um, is the human interface language, which is hieroglyphics based with words and shapes and all kinds of things. So it's a hybrid language of visual and, and, and linguistic. So in linguistic and extra linguistics, right? painted together and and then the machine uh, language which is um, very precise uh, because it has to be and if and if our language was precise enough that would be our coding languages we wouldn't have needed to invent coding languages for precision Mach machines require precision that our language does not offer up um, so it kind of reveals the fact that the words we use are not precise Otherwise, they'd be coding languages. And it kind of comes back to my thing, will will we ever code using natural language? The answer is never fully, because it's unless we change our language to be more precise. We've so, already tried that. Yeah, so I actually have a, a little history of mathematics note on that topic. Oh, nice. So if you look at, yeah, I know, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring it. <laughs> I uh, love math, so... so. <laughs> Amar Hayam, I have no idea how to pronounce K-H in, in Arabic, so good luck to me. But um, this is a luminary mathematician of the 11th century. Like, a giant, a giant mind of mathematics. <laughs> and he writes that he's stumped, he can't find the roots of the cubic equation. You know, maybe greater people who will come in future centuries, maybe they will be able to solve this giant of a problem. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. What kind of things did he solve, though? And difficult, big problems. Like, but come on, the cubic, its roots, didn't we all do that in high school? What went wrong here? Why is this giant not able to solve the pathetic cubic equation, find its roots? So that one, you know, with x cubed, blah, 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 um, equals zero, and then find what the x's are equal to. It's that one from high school. And then, turns out, if you look at how he was going about attempting the cubic, the whole thing was paragraphs. He didn't have symbolic representation, <laughs> x cubed. He didn't have pluses. He would, the plus was and, the word and. Now, the whole thing <laughs> would be paragraphs. And he's getting mired in the, the nonsense that he's spewing. It's not precise. He's trying with normal language. <laughs> and it's later Cardano, who was supposed to be a bit of a prat, um, it is credited with the first general solution to the cubic. Um, his main contribution, if he didn't steal it from someone else, it's a whole fun part of mathematics history. Um, the contribution is the symbolic manipulation. Essentially a coding language. It, essentially a language that says very little, very precisely. Yeah. That <laughs> squishes the ambiguity out. And so when I look at prompt engineering, 
look at how it's evolved. So the first prompts all of us wrote, nice, uh -huh. short, sweet, write me a poem about bananas in the style of John Milton, right? Like that. And you get what you get, and who knows? And maybe uh -huh. it's amusing, maybe it's delightful, but are you going to have much control over what you get out? No. And if you don't care, well, then keep it open-ended for sure. But then people realize, okay, I want a bit more control. So what did they start doing? What was the thing we noticed happening to prompts almost immediately? They got longer. What Very happens fair. when they get longer? More specific. More fair specification fair. in there. Yeah, a longer algorithm to match to, yep. Then, so you're constraining what kind of output you could get. Uh -huh. Not just the most common thing all over the internet, but more like think of what's going on there as you are pointing a flashlight at this big cloud of words and concepts, etc. And it is kind of a autocorrect, if you will, autocomplete, word-complete thing. Uh -huh. And you're using this nice flashlight to say, complete it from approximately this part of the cloud. Okay, I'm very much oversimplifying, but it's, it's an okay mental model. Uh -huh. And so by making it more specific, you are constraining where you can go look to pull uh -huh. the words from, and you're going to get a more specific kind of output. Well, what did people do right after that? Hey, we can use code to specify what we, how we want our prompt to be structured to have more control over the prompt. Uh -huh. Once we do that, in our code, we'll say, when I write X, just fill it with this sentence. <laughs> in a little while, the whole thing will be X and Y, 32 <laughs> plus 25 equals, and there's your prompt. Uh -huh. So we're going right back to individually customized programming languages. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've said that many times, that there's very little difference between prompt engineering and coding. It's just another language. But uh -huh. to your point, it's, it's just uh, less predictable. Um, less precise. Um, but I like your analogy of the flashlight because I sort of think about a flashlight and, and how you can turn the the beam to be wider or narrower. So the longer your prompt is, the narrower the beam gets. But then there's some point where you overturn and then it starts going wider again. <laughs> you know, and the beam starts growing broader and that, and that can kind of happen as your prompts get too long because you start to like overrun the precision and you're like, now there's no words left. So we're gonna have to like sort of back into it. Um, so I kind of like that analogy. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, think, that's... I think it erodes slightly there because we're dealing again with probabilities. Yes, And yes. estimates and yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you the... know, close enough. Yeah, yeah. But as long as there's vectors, there's like, yeah, a certain number of patterns that that you can find and then you start to to lose lose oh. well if we're, we're going like, to get precise we have to say this is we have to take that component where this is simulation and in what sense is it simulation there is an actual estimated distribution which is very hard for our uh, puny minds to wrap themselves uh -huh. around because our memory and working memory and imagination is so much smaller than that sheer brute force volume of what can sit on those servers and be held in memory. Um, but that said, you have this essentially estimated statistical distribution. And uh -huh. like if you imagine from your stat 101 class, you've got that bell curve and you can simulate from that a right. number that has never been seen before. If you have 
tolerance to enough decimal places, you could pull one that no one's ever <laughs> seen before. Some combination of decimal points um, or digits after the decimal point. Well, similarly, here you could pull something that is in a combination no one has ever seen before. So they're words and not digits after a decimal point. Uh -huh. And we're specifying from where in this thing are we getting it. We can still get something that is, in some sense, brand new. Right. So when when we do talk about prediction, it feels like, and maybe maybe I'm misperceiving this, but it feels like out in the world people act like it's a bigger mystery than it really is. Like you know, the data you feed it influences the output. You know if if you feed a data from Reddit versus Wikipedia you're more likely to get racist comments. It's not that this is a mystery, right? It's not like, oh, we fed it Wikipedia data and out came racist comments. Like, is there a chance that that we're, we're kind of overstating the invisible nature of how these things really work and that that we can analyze the inputs, ingredients in their individual sources, just like the FDA can look at the ingredients that go into making a, a, a cupcake that they sell on the shelf, and we can analyze them for certain elements, like traces of arsenic or whatever, and know that it be, if this flour contains arsenic, that the cupcake's going to contain arsenic. Uh, so there, there is a difference, and I do want to get to that, but... First, there, there is too much magic in this space. People pronounce data like it has a capital D. Uh -huh. And they believe that if something is mathematical, it is somehow better than some nonsense someone made up. Uh, there's a nice saying, um, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. It turns out <laughs> yeah. that with data, you're still just another person with an opinion. <laughs> data is like a big old Rorschach plot. You know, those, um, uh -huh. those ink plots where you... you dribble some ink on a page, you fold it, you show a picture, you're like, what do you see? Is it two foxes? No, it's two children playing, then we can have an argument. Uh -huh. It's both of those things. It's also an owl. It's also a Halloween pumpkin. It's many things. There are many different ways to see it. For any data set, likewise, there are many different ways to see it, and there are many different ways to take the patterns out of it and turn it into something. Uh -huh. So it's not magical. The assumptions that we make when we're dealing with probability, as in, we don't need to make assumptions when we're doing a lookup of your passport number to your name. Look up the passport number, get the name, same way every time, right? no probability. But when it's like, here's a picture of a cat, is it a cat or not? There's some probability involved. <laughs> and um, that can be hard for people to wrap their heads around. They still think, oh, the thing said it's a cat, therefore it's laid down the law because it's from mathematics, because we did AI, because it's data. Like, no, it can be based on garbage. If you give it garbage examples, it's going to not succeed. If you give it only a bunch of examples of squirrels and you run all kinds of mathematics on it and then you show it a cat, it's not going to identify the cat for you. And that should be tautological. That's <laughs> uh -huh. completely common sense. In the same way as when you show a human child a bunch of pictures of squirrels and you have never shown it a honey badger, it will not know what a honey badger is when you show it the photograph of the honey badger. Right, right. So, so that should be straightforward. It, is, it seems not to be because we still believe in mathematics. Like Mathematics has done such a great PR campaign. On the one hand, a terrible one, because people think that in order to be a mathematician, you look a certain way, like 
I couldn't possibly have a graduate degree in mathematical statistics because, you know, I don't have like a pocket square and a little bow tie and whatever else. Um, but I, turns out, look like somebody who has a graduate degree in mathematics and was very good at mathematics my whole life. So on the one hand, bad PR campaign, but on the other hand, oh, it's mathematics. It's done by the priesthood. Only intelligent people are here. It's perfect. It's like, bow down to it. No, it's some nonsense. It can create total rubbish. Don't trust it. It might be trained on bad things. Always keep your wits about you. Is uh -huh. data good? No, data is just some garbage people decide to write down. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not useful. Where did data start? With writing. If it's written in a book, it must be true? No. Similarly, if it's in a data set, it must be true and useful? No. So we got to keep our wits about us that way. But there is one difference in what you said, which is that the reason that we are appealing to data, the reason that we're appealing to AI, it's that it's a moment of humility for humanity. It is us going down on our knees saying, I finally admit my stupid noggin can only <laughs> barely hold seven digits of phone number in it. How am I expected to come up with a solution where the steps are a million different steps? <laughs> I can't remember all that. Even if they're simple steps, even if any single one, if I read it, it'd be like, you know, add two plus seven, but then give me a million of them and I've forgotten. So it's it's the humility of saying, I don't have the kind of memory that can hold so so long. I'm not going to say complicated because it makes you think every step is complicated. <laughs> so yeah. long of a solution. So long of an instruction set in my own personal head. So I cannot solve this thing because I cannot hold so much in memory. What data is and what computers are is really good memory machines. And so yeah. why you can do use we good have... memory to memorize rubbish, but it's good, good memory. That's the difference. Yeah, the complexity so why... of not being able to read it. Right. So then why do we have so much of our identity and self-worth cut up into memorizing more than seven numbers? Why Why don't we just go, forget that's productivity. Like, wh let's let that go. Why are we measuring ourselves by our productivity? And why don't we just measure ourselves on what makes us feel good, which is our creativity and our connectivity with other people? and let this go and be like, hey, maybe this is like an enlightenment moment where we can all just finally realize that productivity is, is never the thing people are proud of on their deathbed. We know this. There's no one who says, oh, I'm really proud of all the things I produced in my life. The piece about memory. Uh -huh. I want us to say, you know, amen. Yes. Um, the thing with memory is that when you are a species, that uh, distinguishes itself from other animals by being able to verbally teach things in order not to lose knowledge and not to lose learning about which plants are poisonous, you know, how to sharpen a stick, how to make fire. But you have no ability to store anything in anything better than your human memory. Uh, if you're a species like that, you really rely on the people in your tribe who've got better memory, who can tell those stories and carry them on. And by the way, to, to um, make a little note to what we're going to have to get into when we talk about productivity, chances are you're going to give them a larger share of the meat that your tribe has. Mm -hmm. uh, you see them as inherently more valuable. Now, I don't know. I don't live in any of these tribes. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know even less about that than about UX. But I can <laughs> surmise that 
It's evolutionary. You would find you would find those folks valuable. Uh, also, to solve disputes like who owes whom how many cows, it would be good if someone could remember that information and you could trust them. Uh, then we had the advent of writing, very very useful. So now those who get the larger share relatively of the meat include those who can write and keep an immutable, well, immutable, you can forge it, but keep a record on papyrus, on clay tablets, of who owes whom what without having to have it in your head. Stories, instructions. But still, think about you have, over time, before computers, you don't have easy access to the larger tomes. You start, you get the printing press, great, or you get illuminated manuscripts full of all kinds of wisdom. Don't eat that herb, do eat that herb. Um, but let's say you're a doctor. You have a very important role in society. But you don't get to look up this information at a whim. You don't have the book, necessarily all the books, in your study. You're supposed to practice medicine somehow. So you're expected to come deal with a patient who has just come to you. And you can't say, whoa, 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 don't just die just yet. I'm going to make a trek to some library in the capital city in the, the basement of the castle or wherever that book is. I'm going to get that book and I'm going to look it up again. And then I'm going to trek all the way back and I'm going to deal with you. No, the way you were expected to go about things is you memorized it. You memorized uh -huh. it, you knew it well, just in case the situation came up because you were not going to be able to look it up. That's how that worked. And so you have people playing those roles in your society. You know, back, back when, just writing down some debt between this and that royal, that will give you a bunch of meat. Now you're the doctor, you're the lawyer who has memorized these large volumes because you can't just look it up at will. Now bring electronic revolution and bring the internet and all of a sudden everyone can look everything up. <laughs> so memory becomes less valuable, relatively speaking, because the cognitive upgrade has now been spread to everybody, <laughs> relatively speaking. But when I was educated, it, we still didn't, we didn't have devices in our hands. You still had to go to the library. I grew up in South Africa. I was educated um, a while ago. <laughs> and the expectation was still that you had to memorize it. And the knowledge that you had was the knowledge that you could steal. You know, like, like Prometheus stealing fire. You had to steal it from the book. The book uh -huh. goes back to the library. You have to hoard it here. You can't just look the thing up. So memory, even in my lifetime, is considered still to be a source of power, more meat for members of the tribe, and a valuable way to get work done. Now, as we have built tools that have rendered that less necessary than before, move along, people. Of course, that's what I'm saying. Amen. Yes. The reason that was there in the first place, the reason you gave people with good memory a disproportionate share of the meat, because you had no other way to solve that problem. Now uh -huh. you have a different way. So move along. Well, could you problems. apply that like same line of thinking to productivity then too? In that so, like so now now yeah. machines are able to do a lot of these tedious tasks and so maybe we should So yeah. So yeah. here we're gonna have to define <laughs> what we mean by productivity. Sure. Now we start using this word and we haven't said what we mean. Productivity, if you think about productivity of a society, what it can achieve for its members on the whole, memory was very important to productivity. Uh -huh. Because society with doctors, for example was likely to do better than a society without doctors, and you could only have doctors if you had people with good enough memory. So in that sense, 
but that's a different productivity from the uh, the way that you're you seem to be using the word might be like productivity is how many cups of coffee, how caffeinated you are, how quickly you stamp the widgets. Yeah, I think we, we tend to sometimes think in terms of like industrial revolution productivity. Like yeah, you know, and, and what, so what there gets you the gold watch? Yeah, uh-huh. so here I have been I've been having thoughts and it's bad when I have thoughts because first they're convoluted, they're long, everyone has to suffer through me talking about them. <laughs> but I've been having thoughts on this topic because this for me is the part of the LLM revolution that we should be very nervous of. So there's this these rumblings go here around about secret cyborgs. Like someone wrote this thing in Wharton about secret cyborgs. And mm-hmm. this is, has, um, the implication here is people would love to use these productivity increasing tools, whatever productivity means, like something that helps you do whatever you're doing a little better, a little faster, right? Whether it's writing blog posts or it's writing emails or it's making graphics or whatever it is that you do, something that helps you do it a little better. Loosely like that, productivity. And the concept there was People would love to use these tools. This is why they're cyborgs. Oh, yeah. But they're secret because they don't want their boss to know. And then I thought, huh, how curious. What a curious and revealing thing about the human condition <laughs> and work right now. And I thought, am I going to shrug at it and say, oh, you know, this is something that I'm sure we'll get over. We'll just get used to it, like computers. Or is there something here fundamentally that bothers me a little bit? So I was thinking about it, and I thought there is actually something here. And to explain this, I need to uh, make up a word. And the word I'm going to make up is the word thunking. So we know what thinking is. Thunking is the um, non-thinking pieces of a task. So thinking is where we're having to be fully cognitively engaged, where there's some brilliance, there's some thinking about why something is worth doing, what is worth doing. So could uh, that be related to like original thought and and dogmatic thinking? Uh, let's not go there yet. Okay. Um, I okay. think that's a, that's a um, perpendicular kind of set of issues. I mean, more like there is in art where you think about how you would like to extend the the visual conversation that has been going on for thousands of years in humanity you're like aha the what i here's why i have this thing to say and here's how i want to say it and you imagine that for yourself and then there's the actual execution bit and that is the thunking that's where once you've had the brilliant insight you put your mind sort of on screensaver and just thunk 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 every job no matter how glamorous no matter how fancy has a thinking component and a thunking component. Absolutely. Like, I've worked in some of the most, quote-unquote, intellectual areas, like science, academia, um, and you think that someone who's in neuroscience, I was working in neuroscience, is just doing real brainy brain surgery type stuff. There's a lot of janitorial work. There's a lot of, in order to get it done, there's a lot of disinfecting surfaces. I'm, I'm thinking about other stuff in that moment. I'm I'm thunking there. Nothing intellectual is happening. Let me tell you. Sometimes for days at a time. So each job has these two components. Then I thought, okay, but that's not a problem. Do you sometimes you you can't think for nine hours a day? I mean, seriously, give us humans a break. You literally, you need a break. But then, why does this secret cyborgs thing bother me so much? And I realized they don't trust their bosses, and I don't trust their bosses either. Because, and here's why I don't trust 
the whole history of management and productivity treats productivity as thunking. Why are they the same? They're the same because they are the easiest to observe, to measure, and to manage. <laughs> That's not all of productivity, but literally, the dumbest stuff is the easiest thing to measure with a stopwatch or a checklist. How many widgets did you make? How quickly did you walk those steps? How many clients did you reach out to? Not how brilliantly did you engage our next client? Not what kind of copy did you write? Not how right. well did you design the thing? But thunk, thunk, thunk. Yep. So if that's, if that would, is what productivity means to people. Yeah, and, and a unit of measure that could... can map across any human, right? Because yeah. they need it to be broad. It can't just right. be your unit of measure. We, right. we can't create a new one for each employee. Oh, yeah. No, no. Don't, don't get me started on what this means for education because then right. we're going to go. But let's just go gently. <laughs> yep. Imagine we have managers who don't know how to, me how to manage thinking, uh -huh. only thunking. They don't know how to measure thinking, only thunking. They don't know how to optimize thinking, only thunking. And this is the whole history of management. Now, what if you said, we're making thunking optional. You, you wanted to, in the space between thinking, you can go do some data entry the way you used to, or the data entry will just happen. You can go play 2048, Candy Crush, go to the gym, go for a walk, whatever you like. Suddenly uh -huh. optional. What is management going to do, though? They don't know how to handle that. Right. And workers should be scared of management who hasn't worked this thing out. Yeah. So we, this this uh, subject came up actually with um, Don Norman, but in education. the And the, the question I asked him, I'll ask you the same one, is the thunking measurement, which I 100% agree with you on, um, is there a competitive role that it plays? In other words, competition, right, is kind of a key component of education that we don't talk about, but we all know is there. It's a motivator, and and therefore it it carries over into business because let's face it, all managers are trained by their teachers, not by other managers, and on how to be managers, so they act like teachers, right? Um, and... And so we, we look at that and we go, is the thunking measurement a mechanism for generating competition? Because we've got to, we need to measure to comp have humans compete. We need a common measurement to have them compete on. We need to keep a score, right? And then how do we mix? Do we, do we have to let go of this competition or is there a way to redesign competition so that it still has a place, but it's not so obtuse to your point, like you're competing against the wrong thing. We're measuring the wrong thing. Well, okay, so so I'm just going to be annoying because I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly annoying in this way with you. Uh, I want to break it down. What are we talking about? So in and out, in the way you phrased your question, we're going in and out of treating competition like it is a thing that is a must-have to a thing that has a purpose, but to what end? If it has a purpose, then we must ask to what end? Is it to help us um, is it to help us forge through steel through fire the the best and toughest members of society? If it's for that, is it effective for that? That's what we should be asking. And how would we measure that? We actually have no idea. Uh -huh. Number two, is it for us not sharing, which is something that humans love? gives us a reason, a, a way to say, I do share with you and I don't share with you. So what I mean here is, in school, it's very difficult, if you're going to have very few teachers, 
to scale one teacher over 50 students or 30 students even, if you have all thinking, all everyone can have their own answer, there's no right answer, it's a very creative task. You can't every day ask a teacher to grade 30 creative essays. It'll drive the teacher bonkers. One teacher doesn't scale like that. But what you can do is you can have them grade one right answer. So 50 students go out, do whatever hard work they do for homework. They'll come back with the thing and there is just one answer to the thing. That the teacher can grade 30 times. I remember grading statistics, homeworks like that while watching Dexter with my big red pen being like, you do like you, I do just like that with me and my red pen, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I could get through a lot of answers because there were multiple choice. So, you know, one size fits all, one final answer. And I'd only have to look into it if the answer was wrong. So it helps scale the teacher. But if you say, okay, but we just want one right answer, then assign them two plus two equals four. Everyone who writes a four gets the grade. Everyone is an A plus student. Oh, wait, 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 wait. But we need, we want layers, don't we? We want to have people with whom not to share. We want people at the top to give accolades to, and we want people at the bottom to say it needs improvement in Scowlet or whatever else their social consequences are going to be. And if we do that as a society, if we believe that on the basis of merit or something that we call merit, that we are going to give unequal resources to members of our society, well, then competition, so to speak, uh -huh. is a way of seeing who runs through this gauntlet as it's designed with its current set of incentives, who ends up at the top so that we don't share equally across all members. Now, again, we might ask, is that how we would want to design a society if we were designing a society? Is that efficient? Some would argue yes, some would argue no. But again, what is the purpose of competition here? What I will say is, um, when I think about education like that, one right answer, and then make it like boring and difficult to get that one right answer, and really like show that you can focus and you can memorize. I think what has a structure that is closest to that? Well, that's STEM, right? One uh -huh. right answer long, boring, complicated, not every kid is going to be able to pay attention enough through it to get all the logical steps. And if you are engineering from memory and building stuff, you kind of need members of your society that have those skills. No wonder the STEM people are the heroes. Until you realize, uh-oh, what is today the, the ideal task for AI automation? It has a right answer, and it's long and boring to get there. The perfect AI task. So those tasks that we used to give outsized praise to for kids who could do it in my generation, uh -huh. those are the most automatable tasks by AI. And by the way, that's, that's not mathematics with a capital M, like mathematics, the discipline you would practice. That's math in school. Uh -huh. When you're a practicing mathematician, you actually have to do creative stuff. Uh -huh. But there's like long, boring, you have no idea what it's for. You, you're just learning some stuff, trigonometry. Like, what kid knows why they would need that? They don't expect to go measuring treetop pikes. They don't, they don't know what they want it for. So those who can suffer through it, those are the ones you want to give extra resources to and praise the most. It's a, it's a funny kind of thing society does. Well, maybe it'd be better to, instead of focusing on competition, try and focus on collaboration. Uh, I guess we talk <laughs> a lot about like co-creation, uh, Rob and I. But, but yeah, that idea that like what's more valuable than people being better than other people is like how and, well and people can work together I'll, to solve I'll say, problems. Yeah, I'll say one, one more thing. The, um, the kind of, if you ask somebody to do mathematics without knowing 
why they're learning these hard things. Like, do the slow, long, and it's boring if you don't know what it's for. Like, to me, a lot of the time, it wasn't boring because I, my parents taught me just like, skip the chapter in the textbook, go to the problems, treat them like a game, and go back yeah. to the chapter and see if you see anything that helps you solve the game. So I was solving puzzles. That was much more fun than just like learn the boring chapter. It is pretty boring if you don't know what it's for. But then I think to myself, well, what are we encouraging in a society? <laughs> it's slow. It's boring. You're paying attention to the slow, boring thing. You're not asking why you're doing it. Is it compliance? Is it competition or compliance? Who are the most compliant, most obedient? Uh -huh. Most I'll suffer through it without asking why the hell we're doing it kind of people. Is that what we're trying for? Now, again, I'm not an architect of a society, but same thought. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's what's cool about AI, like the, the flashlight analogy in a way. Like everywhere you, you shine AI, you tend to like see systemic change is badly needed in so many different yeah, areas. It's a, it's a mirror. <laughs> yeah. It's a mirror. We're like, oh God, is that what we look like? <laughs> I don't want to look in that mirror. <laughs> that I won't argue with. That, that is the one I won't argue with you there. Um, yeah, I, with Don, we kind of netted out around the idea that competition is ultimately, and it's maybe in its best examples, um, is, um, is just motivation. And maybe to your point, it's motivation to do thunking <laughs> because it's hard to do thunking. And maybe if we can gamify our thunking by it, adding competition, it makes thunking a little bit more easy or easier uh, on us. I'll, I'll say another little thing about thinking versus thunking. So when I proposed this, a lot of people went, what do you mean? You can't automate the thunking. We need thunking. We're not going to be able to think <laughs> if we don't get a chance to thunk. Now look, I love me a good thunk. Nice data entry, nice glass of wine, Saturday night, mwah, right? Call me weird. It's been one of my favorite activities since I was eight years old. Not the wine, the, the data. The thinking, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And that's also why I'm not so into Candy Crush because I can do data entry. That's the same thing, but more fun. Uh -huh. um, programming is like Legos. Math is like Sudoku. They're all, they have the same kind of feel. So I don't need Sudoku if I have math. I don't need Legos if I programming, right? That, that kind of thing. So a nice dunk, it's a nice, it's what, you know, it, it just makes your universe make sense. You're just ordering things nicely. It's, I mean, I'm making biscuits like a cat, right? But it kind of feels like that. <laughs> yeah, meditative anyway. It's meditative. <laughs> it's nice. So mm -hmm. if I couldn't do data entry, I'd play Candy Crush or something like that. Maybe I would rake a Zen garden. I don't know. Something would play that role for me. Well, and people are like, no, but you need that to get your thinking done. That's you need right. that to orient with the task, of course, and there'll be some amount of orienting with the task. By the way, when you're actually orienting with the task for the first time, it's not thunking yet. You're fully engaged. But when it becomes mindless, there's some joy to the mindlessness. Standing in a shower, you get great ideas. Going for a walk, you get great ideas. And that might be because you can't force the thinking. You get too stressed out when you're trying to say, oh, no, I have to come up with the idea right now. And it's when right. you let go a little and you've got this light cognitive engagement of raking your Zen garden or whatever it is that you do that you might come up with an idea. And I'm like, great, I hear you. Maybe there's some value to thunking that it promotes thinking. But, you know, don't come at this like you know the answer about how to best manage the thinking. Treat it like a medicine then. How are you going to dose the amount of thunking that is most optimal for the thinking, if that's your goal? Definitely. Like, don't pretend like business knows the answer to that. We don't know how much is necessary. And we don't know that it's necessary to have it... Um, be of the same kind of task that you're working on, like do some thunky writing to write your 
best memoir or something. Um, we don't know any of that stuff, but I will say one thing that I'm very sure of. When I go for a walk, and I may or may not, and I give myself permission not to have any ideas, and maybe I end up having an idea, maybe I don't. But when I'm going for a walk, casually, with no pressure, I might get a good idea. But if I had a manager who was measuring and optimizing my thinking of my walk and wanted me to get the most steps for the furthest distance, the most aggressive, fastest pace, in fact, don't even walk, Cassie, run, sprint as fast as you can this whole time, then I am pushed to the limit of my tolerance to get the highest productivity on the thump. <laughs> I will tell you that the probability of a good think is way low for me. And I can only speak to my own experience. But I think that it is when we squeeze the most thinking productivity out of people that we just the ah, don't thinking. believe that we leave the space for thinking. So it's maybe a, a, a way to think of it is it's not meditative anymore. It's not exactly. restorative. It There's now no becomes it, it becomes yeah. a drain. It becomes what the thinking is. It takes all of the energy. It's no longer restoring and recharging. It's now draining the charge so we're just draining the battery on and it, mindless tasks and if if as managers we believe that it is our duty to maximize that we think that is productivity right is that productivity for society no i'm pretty sure brilliant ideas inventiveness creativity take us with to better quantum leaps we have right. so many medicines we need to invent we have so many problems we actually need to solve around yeah. here we've art to make we have a better future to build if we're maximizing the thunks, oh, right. so how pathetic me, of us. So let me extract that. I think here's what I'm taking from it. We're competing on the wrong thing. We're competing on the thunking. We should be competing on the thinking. But and, we don't know how to do that. And but we don't know how to do that. But that's okay because we can at least do the negative. We can, not, we can stop competing on the thunking to at least leave room to know that we got to solve this problem, right? Like we, we, can do, we can solve half the problem by stopping competing on the thunking, right? and then start focusing on the thinking. Yes, but, and this is where I become an economist, and I have to say, unfortunately, power structures are a real thing. Uh -huh. You have intergenerational power structures that are based on particular skills, Lit be it literacy, be it memory, doctors, lawyers, for example. Um, and now you say, stop, stop memorizing, stop productivity as you know it, stop thunking. Uh -huh. That does not a stable transition make. Agreed. So yeah. it's one has to be careful here. Yeah, no, it, it'd be better if machines could do it. <laughs> well, would it though? Because yeah. we don't we don't have a solution in the absence of a management solution, in the absence right. of knowing how we're going to handle this in a, a compassionate and humane. I would like and to you know be part of a civilized, compassionate, humane society, yeah. but. Make me put that on hold because you know, people are like, you sound awfully French right now, Cassie. And I'm like, I'm sorry, France, that this uh -huh. is all, but you know, that's what people mean. I'm like, but I, I'm the University of Chicago economist. I'm supposed to be a cold monster. So uh -huh. I, can, I prefer the compassion. I prefer the, the nice things, but let me speak to cold monsters, if you wish. Cold uh -huh. monsters, it may be long run inefficient for us not to solve this problem. Dunking and measuring and managing productivity the old way in the uh -huh. presence of machines uh -huh. and then firing people because you don't know how to manage the best out of them may be long run inefficient. It yeah. doesn't actually warm and fuzzy. You may uh -huh. simply be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
you don't understand the good thing. You don't understand that maybe the thing that you actually need the person around for only happens once a week. And you don't have the creativity and vision yourself to deal with that. So you fire the person. That in the long run may hurt you more than it helps you. Yeah. Are we in position now, though, to like gradually move to a place where we're using technology to, to automate some of the thunking tasks, figuring out which thunking tasks are, are actually like have nuggets of necessity for the thinking part, but then also it doesn't doesn't feel like we would be able to figure out how to manage thinking um, by by any other way than like going through the exercise of like letting people think more and kind of seeing where that takes us. And then it almost feels like it's going to have to be a retroactive. what an exercise. What an exercise. Yeah. Look, I'm not I'm not presenting to come with full solutions to this. I would love for us to be careful. I would love for us not to jump to conclusions in either direction. <laughs> but when I see things like uh, job postings that say create 10x the normal number of blog posts and also do it at full quality just because there's ChatGPT around as a blogger, <laughs> I am very skeptical that that kind of thing is a good idea. You fire all the people who can't do 10x, I don't know what you're going to get left with, but you're not going to like it. It's interesting you bring up blog posts, but if I was to think of like something that's like LinkedIn post, there is this concept of likes, right? And is that as as much as we can make fun of that, and I can, um, is that a <laughs> is that a step in the creativity measurement direction? Is that a like step in the oh that's like like ten posts that nobody likes versus one post that gets i mean are we are we very very like rough very badly moving in that direction what this reminds me of a lot is um uh when i think about robustness of ideas even um principles around um in the animal kingdom genetic robustness if you have only one kind of squirrel is just one kind of squirrel and you've got no other kinds of squirrels it takes one disease one same disease and you kill all the squirrels whereas if you had lots of different squirrels and they're not just squirrels you've also got all kinds of other warm fuzzies and some of them are earthworms and whatever right um again not a biologist don't mind me it's just an analogy but the point is that um you end up with if something happens or goes wrong in one spot of the system, it doesn't bring down the whole system. The more you start to scale the thing up, leverage it and make it all monolithically the same, uh-huh. the more it is creates certain kinds of fragility and very wide effects that you may not have expected. And so likes are an interaction between users and LinkedIn between LinkedIn's incentives and LinkedIn's algorithm. And those incentives and algorithm are a monolithic thing. (laughs) It will have fragility in terms of the good that it creates. Yeah, too much of a blunt object, right? Like not not sophisticated enough. Yeah, will it, it will be very one size fits all in some sense, (laughs) but it will also create and incentivize certain kinds of behavior. In some ways, you will have behaviors where 
uh, in some systems, it's just a bunch of bots liking the output of a bunch of bots right. and making <laughs> money off of the system. Because if, for example, you've created a system where a lot of likes mean that you will show it to real users, well, one way to hack that is to create a bunch of bots that will give you the initial likes so that right. you can be shown to the other users. Uh, anything that might be organic content not made that way could be tossed aside, not shown right. to anybody. And so the system becomes more monolithic Isn't because it? the algorithm promotes on a single objective. So it's sort of like saying a, a bad measuring stick is worse good than no law. measuring stick, right? The, 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 the principle is called good odds law. It is. When, uh, how, how, does, how is it pronounced? Where the measure becomes a motivator or something like that, it's no longer a good measure. Like when yeah. people know what how to hack the measure. Right, right. Yeah, I, it's more, it's late in the day. I usually know this one called for that. <laughs> Forgotten okay. the nice, the pithy phrasing. So, <laughs> no, at least you, now just, everyone just edit will out, understand just, it. Just have my lips moving and just, and, and you Let's know, dub that in, overdub yeah. over Yeah, But yeah, good hard work. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because uh, thinking about technology and then social media in particular, and then now moving into to generative AI, technology does start to almost feel more like food in a weird way. Like we 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 are kind of ingesting maybe, these things, <laughs> and maybe you think I don't know I don't know. <laughs> to me, anyway, uh, we were kind of having this conversation yesterday. I mean, like with yeah. food, you you ingest it, and you have that immediate gratification of having ingested, it, and that was exciting. That was an experience, and then you also have kind of the ramifications on your your health and well being that sort of bubble up after it, you've ingested it. And so, I mean, you could you could almost argue like OpenAI kind of went into the kitchen pulled everything out of the pantry and threw it into a stock pot. But then they also just grabbed everything out of the out of the cleaning cupboard too and threw that in there and made like this yeah. giant cake. And then now they're kind of parsing out the poison. Garbage, and so garbage in, garbage out. That's, yeah, but, so that's we were, where it's at. When we think about like people interacting even ever more intimately with technology, like would there be value to some sort of like nutritional label almost that tells you like not only like what kind of training data went into an LLM for instance, but also maybe show the team that built it so that you can learn. So it, I feel like that might actually have two benefits. Yeah. One, that it sort of takes some of the magic away from the technology. You're not just thinking it's like godlike, you know, you're actually, and then you're also, you're learning about you it. Guys, and... You guys are the worst. You have such complicated <laughs> questions. And I'm okay. like, it already deserves a response. You got to stop. I can't, I can't do them all. Um, I've written so, the bullets on my well, hand I so I can revisit those for you. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Um, so there was a first bit about food. Mm -hmm. Let's table that for a moment. Okay. I would love to lean into and applaud and, you know, celebrate your second thing that you said, which is that I'll rephrase it the way I, I advocate. We've been complacent for too long. We should not allow technology to be faceless. These things are made by us. They are designed by people, by humans. There are humans saying this is a good idea. And when we allow these things to be faceless, and when we add the glamour of data, and we add the rigor of mathematics to it, like it can do no wrong, we're not seeing the man behind the curtain, right? Or, or woman, but to use the um, Oz reference, the, the uh -huh. Wizard of Oz reference, the man behind the curtain. Any technology is made by people, and there is always value judgments involved. And it seems like a 
seems like I'm only talking about something like AI. And frankly, a chair is a value judgment. The fact that you would come into a conference room and there are chairs for the audience to sit on is a value judgment about um, whether or not we want people to have good abs and glutes and strain the medical system with sore lower backs later on, or whether we want people to relax and pay attention. Just a chair even is a value judgment. Mm-hmm. The presence of mm. a chair. Oh, absolutely. Now, the designer. if a chair yeah. is a value, yeah, you guys are designers. Yeah. You know. So if a chair is a value judgment, my goodness, how much value judgment goes into which data to use and mm-hmm. what success means. Because those, those are the two sentences that the team behind an AI system has to utter. This is what success looks like. And that's a complicated sentence, but that's mm-hmm. half of it. The other half is, and use those examples. That data, that's what you have to use to get to achieve this success. First, before we even dig into either of those things, like I would love for those things to be recorded and auditable in the event of issues. I would love for that. But before we even get to that, add a human face to it. Who took responsibility? If we start asking people to take actual responsibility, maybe people will spend a little more time thinking before they step up to the genie and make their wish that's going to be spread to millions or billions of people. So I would love technology not to be faceless. Back to the fragility and the monolithic metric. So what we had before data products or products based on data is we had instructions that a person had to come up with and how they came up with them, it's even more magical than the data to AI thing. So um, what that person must have seen to have come up with the solution is is far more opaque. You don't know what they saw during their life. So it's, it's even less easy to get at. However, in some sense, because the person is uh, limited in their working memory, there is a simple mindedness naturally for in anything that a person makes. And uh, I'm not saying this to belittle my species. I'm saying this as somebody uh, who has studied psychology in graduate school and has seen firsthand what people can and can't do in, uh, in experiments involving working memory what can be expected even of mathematicians, even of those who impress you the most. Not that much. So what do we expect can come out of a mind that struggles to keep seven digits of a phone number in one place? A metric that is simple-minded and fits in a tweet-ish, quite often. Monolithic, let's call it, instead of Uh simple-minded. A set of instructions that is simple-minded and could fit in a few tweets. Okay. And based on what? I don't know. Lived experience. Shrug. Now, instead of that, we're going to have data. Data? If you have a million data points, all million of them are all unique and different. And maybe there's more than a million coming in in the first one. But here, at least, you know, if you're going to interrogate what you think the system is doing, you want to know what it's trained on. Okay. That's a million things to think about. The recipe that comes out of an AI system can have many, many, many moving parts. So maybe that's a million lines of instruction that you have to wrap your head around as opposed to the simple-minded thing. And yet, and this is where you should realize, you should smell a rat, the objective is usually still simple-minded and monolithic. That might worry you slightly. It's like throwing all your attention into a very poorly specified wish or wait, what did we talk about earlier? Prompt. A very short, poorly specified prompt, which by its simplicity is ambiguous. 
at scale. Too big. Yeah, this 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 blunt instrument, right? Blunt instrument. It's naive. So likes naive, likes right? and the algorithms that optimize for likes, that's blunt and naive too. Yes. That's what I mean. That's quite brutal. Yeah, what's the way through it though? Is it through it or is it to back off of it? Is it to refine it? I'm I'm not a fortune teller or a sage of any kind. Let's use but other I, models, like you know, past uh, history. I, I think if we if if I look at nature, and I see critters all optimizing for slightly different things, I wonder if what would make better sense is less monolithic objectives in these systems, smaller systems <laughs> that are not. It's not like one huge system trying to do just one thing. Yeah. But smaller systems, each with slightly customized objectives. That's what it's optimized for, not just requests being made of them, which is the prompt. It's sort of like the blast radius. One ginormous blast radius versus small mini blast radius. (laughs) Right. Or, Or effects that can cancel themselves out. One of the ways in which people are less dangerous than machines is that people all have individually got, even inside one person, different competing Uh, incentives. uh And then individuals have different incentives from one another. So that perfect alignment of single-minded, do a thing at massive scale, is quite rare with people. We're we're gonna all pull in different directions and we might slowly move towards a better future, Uh but we're not going to all at once, kaboom. Yeah, so it's this whole like variety solves complexity idea it doesn't solve it. Well, sorry, is necessary. Is required. Is necessary. With. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we have this this other concept, which is this blunt instrument, which isn't bad in itself unless you combine it with broad mass, um, usage. Right. So you combine those right. two things. We have a blunt instrument that's untried, untuned, mm-hmm. and then we have everybody using it. So now mm-hmm. everybody goes to whatever and, chat and gpt let, and says you know what what vegetable should i eat today and then yeah. all of a sudden like you know every farmer's growing carrots or whatever it, it comes back at so every single person got carrots and now everyone's eating carrots and now farms I, I, only and, make carrots. and now we have a carrot shortage and right. all kinds of other things and it's not People like we need orange. ai to see a history of this um uh-huh. credit scores the way in which we all all dancing prove something that was originally supposed to uh, predict creditworthiness. And now everybody's bending over backwards to do odd behaviors. Uh-huh. I mean, when I think about it, um, I, every month, spend some amount on my credit card and I pay it off immediately. Why couldn't I just use my debit card? Am I less right. creditworthy somehow? It, that's not good design in a system. Uh-huh. Why am I doing this thing? I, should, I shouldn't have to do it. Right. Um, so we have a long history of this, these kind of issues. Yes. The one thing I care most about, turning information into better action in any setting, at any scale, decision intelligence, decision skills, better decision makers. All this stuff, this having of monolithic, simple-minded objectives, uh-huh. scaling it up across billions and then going, oh, oops, is not something society should tolerate. Uh-huh. I want people, first, not faceless, Tell me who the person was. And I want to ask, if not them, who on their team had the skills to think this through? Right? Yeah. You all had the the chutzpah to step up to the genie. Yeah. To make the wish on behalf of billions. 
Great. Can I just ask who was the adult in the room? Who had skills? Who has the skill to think about the consequences of what you're saying? Yeah. We're not training that. I want to train people to be better at that. Yeah, it's interesting and and it's it's almost like a whole other episode because it comes down to the artist versus the agent. And the artist may not be thinking about its distribution when they're creating, but somebody else that wants to monetize it that is their partner, whether that part, however that relationship is yeah. as a partner, whether it's their boss or whatever, they're there to exploit it. And so we have this explore, exploit in different people. So the person creating it isn't creating it with the idea that it's going to have mass appeal. So therefore they didn't design it for mass appeal. And you have yeah. another person asynchronously going out there and trying to exploit it on behalf of that person or really on behalf of themselves. And, and that's really that exploit side of it is the part we got to look at. Yeah. And, and the and- creation that everybody's focused on. I, I agree. I think that the creation side needs to have a face, but I think the exploit side more so has to have a face because they're the ones that control the mass distribution, right? Like they're the ones who say, give it to everyone. We, we have this long history of people mostly being able to have their immediate kin, their friends, maybe, maybe a few colleagues in their sphere of influence. Uh-huh. Everybody is a little bit self-contained. Like how much damage could you do if you are stupid or criminally stupid. Yeah. And now we are offering outsized influence to people. These yeah. AI systems allow a few people to scale themselves up. And I must ask, who has the skills, right? If everyone's stumbling around at five miles an hour, I don't care if you're drunk, if you know how to walk, it's okay. Like, what damage are you going to do? Nothing. <laughs> Turn it up to 100 miles an hour, give you a car, put you in a crowded place. Now I want to know you've got skills. Yep. Because now <laughs> you can do damage. Or have a few people, I see a lot of these things as levers or the ability to enlarge yourself with technology. (laughs) So when you enlarge yourself, you make it easier to step on the people around you. So I want to know, do you have the skills to wield that responsibly? Are you even going to take responsibility for your design? It is when we say decision maker, when we say designer, there is a a bit of overlap there. Yeah. Who is teaching those foundational skills? Yeah, and decision makers are going to be like... Yeah. yeah, I mean, if decision makers are going to be also leveraging things like LLMs to to make better decisions, it's really <laughs> doubly or important that they be depends on their well, yeah, skills. But that's the thing, like, yeah. yeah, they it's it's doubly important that they be faceless, and that also beyond that, that you can like back up a decision that you're yeah, making yeah. based on where the training data and like how how this LLM was assembled, right? I mean, that that might be an ingredient to making oh, a better decision. Oh, goodness, we need a whole nother episode to talk about the backing up <laughs> yeah. of decisions. We have a very bad <laughs> yeah. um, intellectual history on the backing up of decisions. Um, yes. Data, usually, if you don't, a simple little rule of thumb, folks, if you trust the person, you don't need their data. They use their data for decision-making. You don't need it. Uh-huh. If you don't trust the person, their data doesn't make it better. You can't trust them. Love that. You don't need the data in if, either case. If, they need it if they're making a decision. If you can't trust you them, you can't trust it. them. <laughs> exactly. The data does not help you with someone you don't trust. Doesn't you can't look like trust that. the data. Yep. Take, take it from a statistician. Um, so where I want to leave us is just that importance of the decision skill, design of decisions, if you will, decision intelligence. We are unprecedentedly scaling up our decisions. Is Who it? is teaching people decision skills? Who is teaching people to think through the consequences of the incentives that they set, of the assumptions <laughs> yeah. that they make? of the data that they use, 
of the systems that their systems interact with, of the way that the world is changing or isn't, of the whole thing together. Uh-huh. We that need design to make revolution? sure. Exactly. We need <laughs> yes. to make sure that with these things that enlarge us so much that we unlock and scale up the best of us rather than the worst of us. And that's all going to happen automatically. That's about skill. Yeah. Here, here. Well, what a great, great note to leave this on. Good luck at your play. play? Is it a live play? theater? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, good night, Oscar, is what I'm seeing. Right. Oh, very nice. Oh, you're yeah. seeing. Okay. okay. Yeah. You were in it. <laughs> no, I, I, I wish. I wish. No, no, no. <laughs> Professionals at a level that I'm not. Got it. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Cassie. That was yeah, a lot of fun. Thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great. Take care, bro. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm-hmm.